Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We've been hearing over and over again, flatten the curve. Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, coming out and saying that the numbers are looking encouraging, that you're actually seeing them go down when it comes to the death counts, as well as the hospitalizations and diagnosed cases of the coronavirus in New York. But what will uh, this curve look like? That is the question that Kathy O'Neill explored in a, in a column recently for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, just to give you a sense of her background, her math uh, background, which I deeply <laughs> respect. She founded Orca, O-R-C-A-A, an algorithmic auditing company, and she's the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, which I love the title of. And Kathy joins us now. You wrote in a recent column, Kathy, this isn't the flattened curve we were promised. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, thanks for having me. Um, Every time you go to a a Cuomo uh, press conference uh, midday, he'll have slides. And often those slides have models of what the flattened curve looks like and what the current curve looks like. The models, um, which I think are often made by McKinsey or some other modeling group, um, they're symmetrical, which is to say they go up to a peak and they come back down. They often look like normal distribution curves. Um, That is not the actual empirical information we've had. If you look at Italy, Spain, France, um, places that are a couple weeks in front of us, what actually looks like, for, this is both for the counts of people infected as, and, as well as for the death counts, it looks like a pretty rapid rise at the beginning. So the first part of the curve looks right, it h- hits the top, and then it just slowly plateaus and then slowly descends. It is not coming down as fast as it went up. So, Kathy, what do you think? I mean, I, I remember we've heard Governor Cuomo talk about a plateauing, you know, as opposed to the apex and then coming down. Um, so is it your sense that the the coming down on the backside will be uh, significantly longer than kind of that ramp up we saw uh, in the month of March? That's correct. And I should mention, by the way, that um, the weekends are always looking better than during the week. So the fact that the last couple of days looked pretty good, I'm happy about that, of course. But I want us to be prepared for what's going to happen today and tomorrow. By, the, by tomorrow night, it will look little bit less positive than it does now. And that happened last Tuesday. It happened the Tuesday before that. So that's one thing to keep in mind when we look at these, these daily data tables. But yeah, the real, the real reason I think that this matters, this asymmetry of this curve, is that when Cuomo says, you know, we're past the peak, and when he says the worst is over, that's technically possibly true, but it doesn't mean we like half the people who have died have died or half the people who will have died have died. We might be looking at many, many weeks of lots of multi-hundred um, deaths per day. Uh, we don't actually know how long it's going to last and how quickly it will descend. Now, of course, I hope that it descends very quickly, but the, the evidence from Italy and Spain where they had quite strong restrictions 
for t- social distancing and staying in your qu- home and quarantining, um, those graphs do not go down quickly. They're still at hundreds of deaths per day in both of those countries. The importance of this isn't just to understand what we're in for, that perhaps we have a whole lot more pain ahead of us, but also when to reopen, Kathy. Is that right? I mean, in other words, if a lot of people are still getting diagnosed with the coronavirus being over the peak in the short term doesn't necessarily mean that the danger necessarily is gone, right? That's very true. I mean, I think what what Cuomo cares about very much, and, I, and it, it's a very re- real concern, especially if for the governor, is that the hospitals are not overwhelmed, that the number of ventilators we have in our state or in our country um, is sufficient. And so in that sense, the fact that we have passed our peak, it's very, very important. It's, incru- it's crucial, in fact, because the peak is, of course, a very real thing for hospital um, you know, usage. However, it doesn't say a lot about timing. Um, and for that matter, even if the even if the number of deaths per day goes down to quite small, reopening too early before we actually have control, whether we have don't have treatment, we don't have a vaccine, um, and we don't have um, you know widespread testing, might be a huge mistake because that curve can pick right back up again. So, Kathy, that's kind of where I wanted to go because that seems to be where the conversation is shifting now is to when and how do we reopen uh, the economy. And in the absence of any federal uh, guidelines, which we don't seem to be getting, it's kind of left up to the states. How do you think it should go based upon some of the data we've seen from some of the countries that may be a little bit ahead of us? Yeah, I mean, and I'm no, I'm no expert. And I'll, I'll just say it this way. There's lots of ways to define success. Um, and in this case, Cuomo has defined success as the peak has passed. And really, that is only success in a very narrow sense. It's a success for hospitals, um, hospitals not being overwhelmed. It says almost nothing about when we should open, how we should open, how we should do that, um, beyond the fact that we don't want this to happen again, and we don't want this to happen again worse than it happened the first time. Kathy, as a mathematician and a, hedge, a former hedge fund analyst and a professor, You look at data a lot, and there's a question about the integrity of the data that we're getting when it comes to virus counts, just by virtue of the lack of testing. By one estimate, Johns Hopkins uh, data, it shows that about 1% of the U.S. population has been tested. Do you trust the extrapolations that we're seeing uh, as accurate based on the numbers as being a full representation, at least, uh, of how far this has spread? Absolutely not. And thank you for the question. I wrote another column last week about 10 data flaws that I have observed with the daily data. Um, One of them that I was quite adamant about was that we are just missing a whole slew of nursing home deaths. And that, of course, has been coming out in the last few days. There's so many biases going on in in these numbers. Um, The very first and most prominent one being that I believe that the actual number of infected people is around 10 times as many as, as, as are reported simply because there are so many asymptomatic people. But there's also other problems like besides the nursing home deaths, besides deaths that happen in homes, um, besides deaths that happen where people where there's more than one cause of death and we don't really know because there was no test available. We simply have tests themselves that have more false negatives than false positives. Some doctors are thinking, some researchers think that the false negative rate is more than 30%, which is to say that if you get tested and you get negative, there's a chance that you are positive. 
Um, that's for the individual, but for the for the overall data set, what it means is that we are vastly underestimating the number of positives, even for the people that we're testing. So it's a major problem. Our data is not good, and we are so spoiled for data. We think of data as just being as available as the internet, and in a lot of ways it is. But this is a whole new kind of data set that we just do not have do not have yet. So, uh, Kathy, you know, there's a role here for technology. And I think in the last week or so, Apple and Google have talked about, you know, getting a COVID-19 tracking app. And I know you've done some work on that. What do you, do you think that holds some hope uh, for tr uh, really tracking this and getting better data? It, you know, we would get some more data. My biggest concern about that are the blind spots of that data set. Because um, as I understand it, almost all of the uh, tracking apps um, that have been suggested are opt-in. So who would opt in to the, the first question you have to ask is who would opt in for that? Um, and the answer is people who are worried, but do not, uh, do not, you know, that basically have the luxury of, of being worried, <laughs> if you will. So in other words, the people that are delivering our food, the people that are uh, the frontline workers, they don't have the um, option of sort of not going to work because they need the money or they even even more stark, they might not even have the option of getting treated if they do get sick because they're not insured. So I just think there's a whole slew of people, and it's not just a random selective of people. It's the people that are most at risk, most likely to be getting infected, that will simply not opt in. And so then the question becomes, how useful is a tracking app where the most infected population, the most vulnerable population, not to mention people that don't have cell phones that live in nursing homes or prisons, those people are the very ones that will not be part of the system. So I feel like it's is actually a pretty limited amount of good that could be done. Although you could collect some data, the, the, the data you're most interested in would be invisible to you. Kathy O'Neill, thank you so much for being with us. Kathy O'Neill, a mathematician, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, also a former hedge fund analyst and professor, uh, and of course, uh, author of a fantastic book. I recommend you do read it, uh, who all about the practice of math and the intersection uh, between it and the, uh, the financial world. Paul, very much the financial world right now focused on the price of oil as we look at yeah. a plunge to the lowest since 1982. A lot of disparities between the front-end contract that uh, expires tomorrow, not a lot of volume, people kind of discrediting it as it plummets and looking to the June contract. Nevertheless, what it highlights to me is the massive gap between where you can actually buy or sell a barrel of oil versus the futures contracts. In other words, the physical demand is just non-existent. And there are circumstances where, say, in Texas, uh, some shale producers and drillers uh, are actually accepting $2 per gallon in order just to get it off of their lots. And it raises this question of, of what this does longer term, how long this will persist, and, and what kind of cuts would be required to turn it around. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What we've been talking about today is 
oil, uh, WTI trading down about 40% here today to $10.75 a barrel. That's on that May contract, the June contracts, uh, which is a more actively traded one now is uh, up north of that, but still down for the day. Let's get a sense of what is going on in the global energy space. Vince Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone. So, Vince, what do you make of what's going on with WTI today? Well, I mean, this, you know, the story just hasn't changed, really. Um, we're seeing basically a drop in demand of what OPEC Plus has put at something around 30 million barrels a day and potential OPEC Plus cuts of between 10 and 15 million barrels a day. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really change the story. It just means oil will fall in, in theory, uh, you know, more slowly. But we're getting towards levels. I mean, I, I think this is running at around my British Petroleum days of, 19, of the late 80s, where I think $10 or so was about as low as we got in oil. So you kind of have to wonder if we're getting, more, you know, pretty close to the bottom of this. Can U.S. equities rally if you have oil uh, at this kind of level? Yeah, you know, the... I, the, the Correlation between U.S. equities and, and crude is, is very, very tight historically, um, but it moves. This moves more on the demand side of things. So it's the demand side of oil uh, that 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 correlates with equities, not the supply side. And this drop in oil is supply related, um, um, in in the sense that there's you know way too much of it, uh, and they can't cut down to where the to to where the demand is. But I think we're now at a place where we we've we've reached as pretty much as low as we're going to get. You know, this this lack of demand uh, is what weighed, I think, equities uh, looking backwards. Now the equity market is looking forward, and they're looking past this next month or two, I think. They, they may be a little prematurely, but they seem to have discounted it, and they're looking at demand being uh, aggressively picking up in the future from these levels. At least this is what folks are telling me. When I talked to guys this morning about uh, cruise futures, all they're doing is yelling at me and telling me, don't look at the, as we, as we hothead oil falling to the lowest since April, don't look at the front contract that expires tomorrow. The, the June contract down 8.6% is more indicative of to, to where the price of oil really is. Yeah, this is what I'm struggling with. People expecting that demand uh, will pick up in the following months, and you're seeing this the steepening of the forwards cu- curve when it comes to to futures uh, in in the oil patch. I'm struggling to understand why people think that the demand is going to pick up so much. In other words, yes, we're going to have some sort of reopening, but is that going to be enough at a time when in Texas there you know, some producers are paying two dollars for for people to come and take the oil off their off their property? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, Lisa. I think, I think the market is way too optimistic. And I think, you know, one of the things we really need to look forward, look toward, and what, you know, people like Dr. Fauci are reminding us of is opening up too quickly or reopening too quickly and perhaps seeing a second surge in the virus. That is, without question, a real possibility. The state of Texas is, is looking at, at reopening um, or it, plans when they've tested, from what I understand, 1% of the population. So it's really difficult to see how you can be looking at reopening things where you have absolutely no handle on really the spread of, of, the, uh, of the virus. So, Vince, just looking at the overall volatility in the equity markets, I'm looking at the VIX here, something Tom likes to call out, Tom Keen likes to call out. And, you know, we peaked at uh, over 80, but we're certainly a long ways from the, you know, the mid-teens level that we'd ex- uh, enjoyed, I guess, pre-virus. Give us a sense of kind of what that tells you. Is the market getting a little maybe too sanguine about kind of the, the, the near to intermediate term? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, in a way, it does. I mean, you look, you know, I, I have to say, I looked, at, I looked, when I look at futures uh, in the evenings, you know, the night before, I'm like, oh, they're only down 400. You start to think, like, I'm getting accustomed to these moves of, of being, you know, almost getting uh, getting used to the fact that, you know, a 200-point move in the Dow is really not that big a deal anymore in terms of, you know, comparatively speaking. And I think the market's starting to fall into that, that trap as well, where, you know, a lot of the money that we're trading right now, a lot of what we're seeing, you know, everybody talks about it, but it's, it is a reality. It's a, a lot of it is machine-driven. Um, I think the, the interesting point is these are algorithmic, uh, algorithmic programs yeah. that are pre-virus written. They're running, I, I, I think, in a yeah. way, uh, I think they're trading on the wrong things. I mean, they're just not built for this type of a move. So that's yeah. why I think we're seeing this volatility, and we'll see it continue for a while. Vince Signorella. I would love to keep talking with you. We have to leave it there for time constraints. Vince Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg, speaking to us uh, about those algos, which are written for another era, everything written for another era, (laughs) nothing written for this era, which is unprecedented in every which way. We take a look at gold. That is up 11% year to date as people look for uh, a safe haven among other issues here in this incredible uh, time we're living through. Will Ryan is the founder and CEO of Granite Shares. He's based in New York City uh, and spends a lot of time looking at the gold market. So, Will, give us your thoughts as we take a look at gold. How do you think gold should be used in investors' portfolio in these uncertain times? Hi, Paul. Good morning. Um, well, I think the main demand for gold at the moment is for people that are really looking for, for some kind of protection, some kind of insulation from what's happening. And typically at these times, you know, people are not investing in gold to make money per se. They just don't want to lose money. And that's really uh, been the main theme, I think, since this crisis has started. So, you know, gold typically acts as a diversifier because it's uncorrelated to the stock market. So in other words, if the stock market falls, typically you can see gold rising. And really that's created a big uh, demand for investors who are fearful about you know, losses in the portfolio. So gold has been a big winner recently as people look to uh, the potential for money printing around the world and just sort of a lack of stability uh, as we head toward or are in a global recession. I'm wondering, though, going forward, what arguments people should really be looking at in terms of deciding whether to buy or sell gold? In other words, is it the money printing argument, the, the idea that developed markets are going to somehow devalue their currencies because they are engaging in unprecedented and its stimulus and bailout efforts? Or is it more the haven investment strategy during a tumultuous time, people want something to anchor their bets to, and gold is a good place? I think it's both, Lisa. I mean, I think you've got a very situation that's very similar to what happened in 2008. Of course, in 2008, you had those two particular situations at play where you had a lot of money printing um, here in the US, but all around the world. At the same time, as you had, um, you know, fears about um, the market in general and people looking for uh, an alternative to stocks and bonds. So I think you have the same thing this time around. I'll just add in one more uh, thing that, of course, all this money printing is 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 unprecedented. We said that last time in 2008, but um, this time around, it, it's even bigger in terms of the magnitude and the scale. I think what comes with it this time, which is different from 2008, is I think we'll see a lot more spending um, from the the federal government. In many ways, a lot of the policies that were enacted post-2008 
were more restrictive. You could, you might argue that they were sort of austere or policies of austerity, um, and that limited or put the brakes on uh, inflation. I think this time around, um, we've already we've already started talking about what the administration is talking about, you know, a potential two trillion dollars of infrastructure, other types of spending, and I think that this time around that could lead to to inflation. So it's it's interesting, Will. So. What is your sense as to bonds here? I mean, we've had tremendous fiscal stimulus, monetary easing. How are you looking at the bond market right here? Yeah, so um, the bond market, I mean, is has been you know a big mess, um, as you know. But obviously, the Federal Reserve has stepped in um, and really backstopped the entire bond market. And then, you know, clearly, it started with Treasuries, uh, as one would expect, which is the playbook from uh, the last financial crisis or from two thousand and eight. And then what's different this time is that's been extended uh, into corporate bonds. And now, obviously, uh, the latest is junk bonds. And so really, the entire market has been backstopped um, by the Federal Reserve, which has made that, um, again, unprecedented versus what we've seen in the past. Yeah, and you were just talking about inflation. So you sort of have the Fed backstop. And then you also have the idea that you do believe that inflation is going to start picking up. I'm trying to square that with the reality that we're looking at right now of oil and the fact that oil prices have fallen to the lowest since 1982 and, and just keep falling. And I'm talking about the front end contract. And let's just put aside yep. some of the technical uh, backings here. It's clear that there is a glut of oil and we are running out of storage capacity. Square that with the idea of inflation. Well, oil is a very, very specific um, thing at the moment. And, you know, you have, again, this uh, is really quite incredible situation where we're probably here in terms of Cushing, which is the main storage you know, hub for WTI oil, we're probably going to reach the top of the tanks in terms of uh, storage capacity sometime, maybe as early as next month. And really, there's no other place or very few options as to where else um, you can store that excess capacity. As you know, the the, the coronavirus has taken uh, all transportation, or for the most majority of transportation offline, and you need to see um, a recovery in, in the gasoline market to, to increase oil prices. But I think, you know, coming back to the inflationary argument, you, you can have a situation where this money printing extreme um, kind of debasement leads to inflation, albeit, um, albeit while you have you know, severe sort of economic indicators that, that are down and, and oil is a big one. All right. So there's this idea of the, the you print a lot of money and it loses its value and, and prices go up. And then you have oil as sort of a barometer of global trade and global growth. Do you expect oil prices to remain uh, depressed for a long period of time? Or do you adhere to the idea that in the short run, we're going to see production drop off? We're going to see oil producers just stop out their, their wells. And then that will lead to a spike in oil prices when the economy comes to a some sort of new normal post-pandemic? Um, you know, I, I don't know uh, is, the, is the honest answer um, because there's so much at play here. I mean, one thing I will say is there's been a lot of talk about the, the OPEC-Russia um, supply cuts that were announced just over a, sort of a, a couple of weeks ago. But, but it doesn't come into play until May 1st. So we've still got another month to play out of this before that supply cut takes place. But even then, I don't think that's enough to, you know, to stave off the, the sheer demand destruction that, that we've seen. I mean, as, as you know, the biggest, you know, the biggest um, 
you know, contributor to demand uh, is transportation. And if transportation is just not operating, then you don't have that demand. And that's why we've seen this unprecedented uh, buildup in capacity. Yeah. So I think that um, you, you're going to see this continue for as long as that, um, you know, that sector stays down or dormant. And so we'll start driving again. And if that's into the, into a, um, if that's into a market where you know, supply has been cut um, or adjusted accordingly, then you could see a spike yeah. in demand. But I think right now, um, you know, the, the, the clear and obvious thing is that oil prices are going to be low for some time until this, this is cor- corrected. Yeah. Will Ryan, thank you so much for being with us. Will Ryan, Chief Executive Officer of Granite Shares, talking to us about a range of commodities as we face a recession. And the question is, for how long and how will we restart the economy? Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.